everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 2001 edition. To the mind that was beautiful, four to the rings in their halls of throne, two to the can, 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 one to the classy British film, none to the bedroom in the halls of the Kodak Theater where the shadows lie. This was the 2001 Academy Awards. Thank you, everybody. Hello. I hope everybody understood the reference to that. Because that is Lord of the Rings, which we will talk about in a second. But hello, it is I, Christian, as always, here with Brett. Hi, Brett. Hello, hello. And like I said, we're going to be talking about the Best Picture nominees of the 2001 Academy Awards. That was the 74th year. But first, I want to introduce to you a new guest star. We have not had this person on the show before. However, they are a listener Hello to one of my best friends, Maddie. Hi, everybody. What is up? Where are you calling us from? Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, I'm calling in from Albuquerque, New Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going international here. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a joke. People thought I was moving to Mexico after high school. When I said I was going to New Mexico for college. (laughs) And indeed, I have known Maddie since high school. Um, We sort of got off on the We Both Like Classic Movies track. And it just spawned from there. It really just went from there, yeah. It really went from there. Like our senior year, we went to the whole Academy Award Best Picture Marathon. And we like went as the characters from the artist for our prom together. It was very yeah. good. Our pictures are very good. It is. We went to like an old movie theater for our photos. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. So uh, Maddie's here mostly because I asked her on because one of her favorite films slash one of the movies that she really, really knows a shit ton about, including the whole novels of them, is The Lord of the Rings. Uh, one of the big movies of 2001. But yes, I just wanted to give a shout out to her. Hello. Welcome, and let's take it away to Barrett, our fearless leader. Yeah, so really glad to have Maddie on. Um, been looking forward to this one. I was telling Christian beforehand that, you know, we were all like alive and aware for this ceremony, which a lot of times we're talking about years from long ago where we weren't, you know, we didn't know what was going on. But I know, I think we all remember Lord of the Rings probably being out and being the sensation that it was. And so we'll get into that. But briefly, just going over the Oscars of 2001. Um, you know, one thing we'll cover a little bit is that, you know, obviously these are celebrating the films of 2001, which was obviously pretty big regarding 9 11 major events. Um, and so that was definitely a theme that was persistent throughout the Oscar ceremony, particularly with New York. Um, but we'll get into that. Ceremony was March 24th, 2002. Best Picture that year went to A Beautiful Mind, um, for which Ron Howard also won Best Director. 
should it have won? We will see. Uh, Best Actress went to Halle Berry for Monsters Ball, which 74 years in, the first woman of color to win Best Actress, and to this day, still the only woman of color to win Best Actress. Um, Had some wins supporting actress throughout the years, but only one for lead role, which is definitely troubling. Uh, Best Actor went to Denzel Washington for Training Day. Um, which is kind of cool. He just presented the honorary Oscar to Sidney Poitier earlier that evening. Best Supporting Actress went to Jennifer Connelly for A Beautiful Mind. And Best Supporting Actor went to Jim Broadbent for Iris, which is interesting. Uh, but the most wins, A Beautiful Mind and The Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, led with four. Fellowship of the Ring led nominations with 13. Wow. Um, Hosted by Whoopi Goldberg for the fourth time. Seasoned host, always does a great job. But Glenn Close and Donald Sutherland were the announcers, which I found pretty interesting. I think, Christian, you found that. Yeah. And, uh, like, if you listen to when Halle Berry is going up there for her Oscar, you can definitely tell it's Glenn Close. Yes. She she flubs it, like, four times before she finally gets right. (laughs) Um, It was the first year in what was then the Kodak Theater, which is now the Dolby Theater annual location for the Oscars. And we were actually talking about this today, 42 million viewers, um, despite a record length of four hours and 23 minutes. So, I mean, even with length of the ceremony, that's almost double what they do nowadays. So times have changed, obviously. And there, like I said, there was a, a New York City tribute as a result of 9-11 that year. Um, it was presented by Woody Allen. Um, but- <laughs> But um, interesting, that was his first time ever at the Oscars. He, like, very famously did not go to the Oscars. And so he showed up for that. But like he said... He listed off, he listed off so many directors who could have been there. Exactly. Exactly. And I, that, you know, I agree with him. There were so many more better choices they could have went with, but they went with Woody Allen, whatever. Yeah, brief rundown of the Oscars. Christian, I know you always have some fun facts that you put in here about the Oscars. Anything else that you noticed or want to touch on? Um, I didn't write in here, but it was per, it was opened by Tom Cruise, who then did a, a whole uh, Errol Morris semi-documentary about like what movies mean to you. Uh, that was pretty good. There was like famous... Uh, cameos in there and then just regular people that was very nice um whoopi goldberg's monologue is hilarious because she descends from the rafters in like full moulin rouge attire (laughs) but yeah um no that's pretty much it i know that the will smith left halfway through because his kid was sick i wondered about that because he was there and then when they announced his category they had a a still photo up of him yeah like, you know, he wasn't going to win anyway, but you never know. And then we'll probably discuss the um, controversy with Russell Crowe and how he did not win Best Actor. So, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Really interesting stuff. A lot to cover, both with this episode and with our follow-up episode that'll be coming soon. And so keep an eye out for that. Christian, how would you like to go ahead and take us away with our first film? Well, jolly good, I suppose I will. Our first film is Downton Abbey. I'm sorry. Oh, it's Gosford Park, a.k.a. Downton Before Abbey. 
Uh, this is directed by Robert Altman, the famous director. We've spoken about him before um, briefly with a movie called Shortcuts and more in depth with Nashville from 1975, a very famous director. And this is his third to last feature, um, but it has a slew of British actors in it. I'll read some. So Elaine Atkins, um, Kelly MacDonald, Helen Mirren, Maggie Smith, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, uh, Clive Owen, Richard E. Grant, and Michael Gambon. But pretty much it is a sort of a mystery whodunit. There is a get together at a fancy estate, assuming it's called Gosford Park. Fun fact, Gosford Park is never once uttered in that movie. So bear with that as you will. So a, uh, the older sort of Lord of the Manor is murdered and there's investigation of course, but because it's Robert Altman and he really likes to play with characters you get to know pretty much everybody's backstory, things you don't really get to know. And it is more an examination on the class structure because in famous sort of British, I'll say television, there's a show called Upstairs Downstairs, which deals with the upstairs high society versus like the maids and servants of the downstairs. And that's what this movie sort of looks at because we really get to know about the downstairs people. We get to care about them most of them, I will say, I really cared about a lot of them compared to like the upper aristocracies of upstairs. But again, like I said, it's a whodunit, but at the very soul of it, it's an examination of all these characters. So yes, um, I had seen this before. I didn't remember it. Robert Altman and I have a love-hate relationship. Like I love Shortcuts. I love Nashville. Um, I did not like this that much. And I don't know why, because I think I was expecting something along the lines of Nashville. These are very famous actors. Yes, they all get their moments in the sun, I guess, but it left me very underwhelmed. I don't know. I was expecting really more of the whodunit instead of like, hey, let's learn about this person and why they're so sad. I agree. When I was, um, this is my first Robert Altman movie, and I had never seen Gosford Park before now. Um, I didn't think that this script was incredibly original in terms of the whodunit. Um, I've seen a few whodunits, like I've seen Murder on the Orient Express, and Clue is kind of a comedic whodunit and stuff, but I didn't think it added another layer to the already existing conventions of the whodunit. Um, but I appreciated, like, the dark comedy of it. Um, I thought the ensemble was interesting. There are a lot of famous names in it. I thought Clive Owens was an interesting choice just because he's more of like a rough and tumble character. I wouldn't really expect him to show up in like a period piece like this, I guess. It seemed very out of out of whack to me, but um, I did appreciate a lot of the filming techniques that went into it. Um, super inventive. Like I like my favorite thing was the like after dinner party scene where you can hear all of them talking because the director hooked them up with portable mics so you can hear their individual slices of dialogue. I thought that was really clever because it made it really hectic like a party would be. And if you watch more Robert Alden movies, that's his thing too. Mm. Yeah. Cool. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about, but that's his spiel. Like, you'll hear everybody. Yeah, I rewinded it definitely to like listen to other snippets of conversation. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I, I think 
I'm pretty much on the same page as both of you here. I, I, I liked it, I guess. It's like one of those like borderline films of like, like it, dislike it for me. Um, yeah, the acting was definitely the most notable aspect for me. I do think the Academy got it right with who they nominated here. Um, Maggie Smith, just like every time she's on screen, it's like, it just lights up with her presence. Um, of course, I just really love Maggie Smith, but so maybe that has something to do with it. But and Helen Mirren, like most of the way through the movie, it's like, why? Like she's not there very much. But then, you know, her big scene comes up in the end and it's like, oh, so this scene basically got her an Oscar nomination. I can kind of see why. But the two characters I really was most interested in was Emily Watson's and Kelly McDonald's and their kind of friendship. Christian, like you mentioned, having basically the downstairs servants and yeah, they were, they were just, I was far more interested in them than I was the aristocratic upstairs people. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, Maddie, regarding, you know, the, the whodunit nature of it, you know, for me, it's a really important aspect of a whodunit, you know, like Knives Out or Murder on the Orient, Ex Orient Express is that, you know, I, I have to really get down to who these characters are and they have to entertain me to some degree um the really vibrant characters and i mean sometimes we get that here most of the time i, I don't really care about them and i find some of them even kind of hard to distinguish from one another um uh, but yeah great really great cast really good ensemble you know um there were some things that were kind of interesting you know the twist at the end was something i didn't feel like it was totally earned throughout the rest of the film particularly with the characters it involves but it also didn't feel like anybody even cared about who was murdered yeah you know it, it's almost like by the end it's like do we even care about that anymore uh, like can we go now yeah <laughs> but i don't know i mean i i'm kind of like you christian altman i we got a love-hate relationship i love yeah. nashville um i hate mash this is like right in the middle for me um and so, I don't know. It, it's fine. It, it's I think it's personally my least favorite of the nominees, but maybe it's a sign that it's an okay lineup because I don't really dislike it per se or hate it. But I'm just thinking back on it. I think I really like out of everybody, Kelly McDonald in this. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's really like good the, too. Um, let me see here. So this one won Academy Award, and of all things, it was for Best Original Screenplay. And the person to write it was Julian Fellows, who, I joke, but he did write Downton Abbey. He intended this for to be like a sort of prequel. Well, actually, it should have been a sequel because Downton Abbey set early in 1900s. So sequel to Downton Abbey. I've never seen Downton Abbey. I don't know if either of you have, but I can only get the vibes just because based off of Maggie Smith. Um, this is also nominated for six other Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director for Robert Altman. His last, um, he never won a competitive. He was honored in 2006, I want to say. Uh, there's a video when Ron Howard won of David Lynch consoling Robert Altman. <laughs> it's very sad to think about. Um, two supporting actress nominees for Helen Mirren and Maggie Smith, The Dames, Art direction, set direction, which is really did have great set direction, I will say, and costume design. 
uh, let's see, it made 41.3 at the box office. So it was sort of a, you know, a hit. Um, Robert Altman and actor Bob Balaban, who is like the movie director in this, he's the only American, he's the only American character, but like Ryan Phillippe is in this. The part where he calls LA is actually pretty funny. I, I did think that was pretty interesting, but. Does anybody else have like a concern with like Ryan Phillippe is in this? Yes. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> he's like Bob Baldwin going like, I want a young star. Give me Ryan Phillippe. <laughs> like I know it's supposed to be Jude Law, which would make so much sense. Yeah, yes. I agree. <laughs> Anyway, so um, Altman and Bob Balaban wanted to work together, and so they came up with this idea of the whodunit, and uh, Altman consulted with fellows, and like I said, murder mystery, but also we're going to look at the class system, because that's more fun, y'all. Whatever. Um, Altman requested the camera always be moving. I was going to tell you both this when you watched it. I don't know if any of you noticed. Did you? I noticed it near the end. There's a part where they're doing like a slow zoom on one of the characters and you can see mm. the camera not just zooming, but also like shaking a little bit. And I was like, oh, is that why I've been motion sickness this whole time? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's moving the whole time. I think you might do that in Nashville too. I think not so. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. And Robert, or not Robert, Roger Ebert, this is his number 10 best film of 2001. And I like this quote, but he said, as the director, he has never, he being Robert Altman has never been willing to settle for plot. He is much more interested in character and situation and likes to assemble unusual people in peculiar situations and stir the plot. Couldn't agree with you more there. I mean, this, yeah. it, it cares less about that plot of the whodunit than it does about every other character. Yeah, but definitely. And I, I mean, I do have to like, I don't know, recognize that like, for example, Downton Abbey has never drawn interest from me. This is a genre that like, you know, the the period costume, it's not really a costume drama, but kind of, you know, ar aristocratic society. It's a genre from that just never really draws me in. And so that might be a little bit of a reason why I'm a little lukewarm on it as well. But it's okay. So I also say that this one, I think the SAG award for best ensemble, which is fine because you know, yeah, makes sense. But yeah, oh Robert Altman, rest in peace. Rest in peace. All right. Well, are we ready for our next film? Yes, it's something better. Yes, ready. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, really excited to introduce our next one. It is In the Bedroom, uh, which is directed by Todd Field. This is like the indie movie pick of this year's Academy Awards. Um, it definitely kind of has that feel, but does feature some pretty big stars as well. Features Tom Wilkinson and Sissy Spacek in the lead roles um, as a husband and wife. And let's just say there is a tragic incident. Um, I don't want to go into it too much because this incident shocked the hell out of me and I knew nothing about it going in and that's the way it should be seen. Um, but it centers on a lot of things. It centers on their grief to that incident. It centers on a relationship between their son and his older lover, who is played by Marissa Tomei, um, and really gets into some of the domestic disputes that come about because of that. And you know, at the heart of it all, 
you know, this is centered in, I think it's Maine where they live. And so it's a boating town. It's a New England town. Um, there's some interesting fun facts about where the title comes from. And a lot of it is really about focusing on how those two characters played by Wilkinson Spacek deal with their grief um, and how they deal with it in very different ways and how they have some clashes as a result of that. Um, and so it leads on. The finale is pretty interesting and goes in directions that may not be totally expected. But for me, it always felt authentic. It always felt real to a degree, despite some of the circumstances they're facing kind of looking at how the legal system is working in against their favor. And um, again, I'm trying to not reveal too much about what's going on here because I just feel like you should go in blind, but I love this movie. I, I, for some reason, New England families dealing with grief, like Manchester by the sea and movies like this, they just, they just click with me for some reason. Um, I think it's really, really well directed. I don't think, Todd Field probably gets the appreciation he deserves because of this, because it's not, you know, it's not flashy or showy, but the performances he gets from the characters and really the story he chooses to tell, because there's a lot of stories packed in here. It could have gone so many directions. He could have gone beyond the ending that we get. He could have started sooner, but how he focuses on the story he tells is really, really magnificent to me. Amazing screenplay. Amazing amazing performances from Tom Wilkinson and Sissy Spacek. Um, and so I, I really, you know, they were both nominated for Oscars as well as Marissa Tomei. And if you can tell, I'm like gushing over this movie. So interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'll let Maddie go. Cause you both, okay. I've seen this. So you both, I want to hear you guys first. Yeah. This, yeah, this is my first time seeing it too. I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, yeah, I thought it was really, really spectacular. Um, yeah, the the surprising part of this, or like the twist or whatever, is incredibly shocking. And I remember letting out like an audible exclamation when it happened because I was like so taken aback by it. And I think that just really shows what a strong um, script that they were working with and how completely original it is. And the all the actors had like amazing chemistry like even if it was negative chemistry like Sissy Spacek and Marissa Tomei had a very interesting like back and forth like pushing and pulling and just like it's just so magnetic and polarizing um and it, it really the characters are so fleshed out with their complexities that go past like this is a likable character this one is not like Sissy Spacek is such a, she plays such an interesting performance and the range of emotions that she goes through and yeah, the way that her character perceives her own grief and how she works with that is just like, it's amazing. I haven't seen Monsters Ball, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure Sissy Spacek maybe shoulda, coulda, woulda <laughs> won that, yeah. but yes, Christian. No, so I have seen this before. However, like the main incident that really sets us into motion, again, like Maddie, I let out an audible gasp because I, I knew it was happening, but in the moment, you're not ready for it at all. And then it goes from there. And I don't know, it's weird to say, but movies about grief, I like them. 
And we haven't spoken about it yet, but like picturing ordinary people, which is about grief, um, it's like the same feeling. Brett, you brought up Manchester by the Sea. Same feeling. If it's grief, I'm there. Why? Because these actors are going to give the performance of a lifetime and a performance I deserve to be really entertained with. And it's weird to say entertaining because, again, you're going with grief. Mm -hmm. But it's like you kept texting me through this Wilkinson, Wilkinson, Wilkinson. He's so good in this. And he is. And then you have Sissy Spacek, who's an acting legend in her, like, in her own right. And even Marissa Tomei. But no, yeah, this is a great film. And it's very underappreciated and more people should see it. And I'm pretty sure to our listeners out there, it is on HBO Go because that is where I saw it. Yeah. Um... So the two scenes that I wanted to talk about was, of course, that incident scene. You both mentioned letting out an audible gasp. I did the same. Um, my girlfriend was actually, she was like not really watching it with me, but was kind of tuned in because I had on the TV. And she was gone. She wasn't in the room when that scene happened and she came back. Part of me wanted to like rewind it and like say, here's where we are. But I'm, I couldn't. I was just like too shocked by it. I was still recovering <laughs> from it. The other scene was the big argument escalation scene between Wilkinson and Spacek in their home. And I, I just, I really, really loved that scene because it perfectly, I think, captured the escalation of their, their grief and their partnership, but also the de-escalation because like right in the middle of this argument they're having, this girl shows up selling candy bars and I'm like, what the hell has, what does it have to do with it? What's going on? But then like how Wilkinson returns from that is like, I'm sorry. I messed up, Spacek, me too. It, it captures that de-escalation that you feel when you've kind of let it all out and now you're looking back on it. Right, it's like kind of reminding them that, you know, even though they're like suffering in their own little bubble, like the outside world is still continuing and life continues on. And there's that little bit of like pressure release when she shows up at those candy bars and it kind of helps them, yeah, do that reset. And kind of go back and reevaluate that she's just grieving in a different way than he is. And it's such like a humanizing moment for both of them. Um, yeah, that's a good scene. Yeah. So um, this did not win any Oscars, sadly, but it was nominated for five. Um, obviously, Best Picture. Like I said, Wilkinson and Spacek were both nominated for their performances, as well as Marissa Tomei for Supporting Actress. And it did get a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination. Very well-deserved. Um, a modest hit, especially for an independent film, $35.9 million at the box office. And so, so people did go out and see it. And I mentioned the title. It refers to the rear compartment of a lobster trap, um, which they call the bedroom. And Wilkinson explains that it can only hold two lobsters for a certain time before they begin to turn on one another. And so connecting that with what happens in the movie, genius. Um, set in the town of Camden, Maine, uh, most of it is accurate with the mannerisms, dialect, and social um, customers of the area. Sorry, customs of the area. That's my fault. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, but one of the reasons the film was made is because Todd Field agreed to waive his fee, and this was his first feature film directorial debut. And second, only to Citizen Kane for a directorial debut to garner more than five Oscar nominations, which is very impressive. Um, and David Edelstein of Slate Magazine wrote, it was the most evocative, the most mysterious, the most inconsolably devastating 
and it isn't over when you leave the theater. It's always going to be there. Completely agree. And Roger Ebert named it his number three film in 2001. So even if it wasn't the most popular, um, it still isn't the most popular, very highly acclaimed on a lot of levels from a lot of different people. So worth checking out. Can I just say that Todd Field, I'm looking at his page. He has not made a film since 2006. Ooh. Wow. So he has directed two theatrical films. That's it. Two. We need something else. Come on, Todd. And he won. And then it has the list of everything he won for In the Bedroom. It's like the National Board of Review for Best Director. New York Film Critics Best First Film. Like, where you go, Todd? Yep. He got mad because the Oscar screwed him over and didn't even nominate him. So, like, screw y'all. As he's like, as he's like browsing the web and is like, hmm, they're talking about In the Bedroom and becomes a follower of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Maddie, take us away with our next one. Can I do that thing I told you? Yeah, you can do that thing. Okay, uh, our journey into the movie adaptations of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, books being originally written by J.R.R. Tolkien and adapted to the screen and directed by Peter Jackson, begins with the rediscovery of the powerful ring formerly belonging to the Dark Lord Sauron. Um, through a series of events, the ring has lay in dormancy in the inconspicuous belongings of a hobbit named Frodo Baggins by way of his uncle Bilbo Baggins for many years. After the rediscovery of the dangerous and powerful ring is made, the story follows Frodo Baggins and his companions as they cross treacherous landscapes, pursued by the evil forces of Lord Sauron in the forms of orcs, goblins, ringwraiths, and the ever-powerful Urukai. Um, this the cast for this movie is insane, starring such names as uh, Christopher Lee, Surian Holm, Hugo Weaving, um, Elijah Wood. Really had us come up with this movie. Uh, Liv Tyler, Suri and McKellen, um, John Rhys-Davies, and this is Orlando Bloom's breakout role, because I think he did some TV before it, and then this was his first major film. I'm very passionate about these movies. <laughs> uh, so I'm very excited to talk about them. I just think they're perfect in every way, like some amazing technologies for CGI and um, practical effects came out of this. Um, I'm, I'm really into the practical and CGI mix um, because the, the workshop that did all the special effects, uh, Weta Workshop in New Zealand, um, they didn't even have a digital effects apartment, department before this film. Um, and they even created like CGI technology called Massive to make like CGI battles more realistic. And they did all the prosthetics and all the set building and it's just such an undertaking and you can tell like how passionate everybody in this whole project, like how passionate everybody was. Um, I think it's one of a kind. I don't think it could ever happen again. I mean, it was, it got fantasy high fantasy into the mainstream so you know that paved the way for like game of thrones and stuff so yeah yeah so 
I have to say, I, I first saw this, all three films when I was nine and that was the last time I saw them. Um, I just, you know, I, <laughs> Christian's giving me the look, but you know, it, it was one of those things where I, when I was nine, I loved the last one. Um, cause I mean like all the action scenes and the big battles and all that fun shit, but you know, and I, I found this one a little difficult to follow. So I just never returned to it for some reason. And partially because I was going to watch the extended and they're so long. Oh my God. I I've been missing out for the last however many years of my life. It's like, I can't find faults with this movie. Um, it's just, it's, it's extremely well done. It's well acted. Ian McKellen probably should have won an Oscar for this. You know, I haven't seen Jim Broadbent and Iris, but he's incredible in this movie. Um, the characters are just so distinguishable. I mean, one of my problems with like Game of Thrones and some other shows like that is that it, it's hard to distinguish between some of the characters. You know, you got your big ones, obviously, that we follow and we love, but some of the minor characters, I kind of lose them in the series. And that just doesn't happen here. Um, so they all, they're all introduced so well. It's a three hour movie, the theatrical version, and it feels like two and two hours, if not less. Um, it goes by super easily. And yeah, like you said, really great visual effects, um, that for the most part have aged really well in these last 19 years. And I, I loved it. Like it's, it's one of those things where when you look at what this was and what it took for Peter Jackson to make this movie. And Chris, I know that's something you've mentioned the achievement that it is, you know, I don't often call films perfect, but like this, this, this might be, there, there's nothing that I would change about this movie. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I obviously loved it. I think it's great. I'm not like, I like the fantasy genre, but I don't often love, love it. And I'm, I'm really excited to watch the next two. Maddie, I think it's basically predetermined that you're going to be back on here to discuss those with us as well. Um, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, this is one that I definitely, I have to admit, I did not have not appreciated and I'm excited to get into the next two and get back to watching them more often. Well, I would hope you would watch the next two soon and not wait for however long it's going to take. Yeah, they'll be they'll be around the corner. Yeah. Um, no, same thing. Like, I love this film so much. I love this series. Um, I, I was telling Brett beforehand, and I'm pretty sure, I, I mean, I've said this to a lot of people, but I saw this opening weekend, 2001, with my parents. And I was like, seven, I think, maybe? Um, I had no idea what the hell we were seeing. I don't even remember seeing a trailer. My parents were just like, we're gonna go see this. It looks like fun. And I was into it so much. And this is getting off the Harry Potter thing because Harry Potter had come out the month before this. So they were like, oh, look, the guy from Harry Potter, which would have been Dumbledore, is in this. Look, he's in like two different movies. They didn't know. Um, (laughs) But no, um, this is definitely a labor of love. Like Peter Jackson, really the only person who could bring these stories to life. Um, there's like an animated version. I don't know if either of you have seen it. And Maddie, have you seen it? 
I've seen snippets of it. Okay, I don't remember it much, but I mean, that's for the kitties. This is for the adults and the kitties. This is the this is the sophisticated college level paper version. Okay. But no, Labor of Love, like Maddie said, the CGI is like super great in this. Very realistic. I believe everything is real. Um, don't watch the Hobbit series. It ain't worth it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole different story about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just think about how this was nominated for 13 Oscars. And when you're watching it, you can see why and maybe wonder if it deserved a few more. Um, There's every technical aspect. I remember Christian... I texted you after watching Milan Rouge and I was like, imagine this not winning art direction or production design. And you're like, wait for Lord of the Rings. My immediate thought was like, okay, like old medieval esque, you know, they, they do that all the time, but okay. You're right. Like I, I watched Lord of the Rings. I'm like, how do they not give that art direction production design? Cause it's phenomenal. The work they had to put into it. And I guess I'm just really glad it paid off too with this being you know, these films being such a big hit and box office successes and they kind of, they transcend in a way because they are, there's definitely a fandom behind them. They are, you know, it's a franchise, it's big budget, but it's also extremely artistic and heavily recognized for that, um, which we just don't see very often. And so it's influential in that way too. Um, I will have to I ask you a question, Maddie. Was this your first time watching the theatrical version? Yes, it actually Okay, that's was. what I thought. Ooh. Yeah, so when this came out, held, so 1993, so yeah. Like I, I Yeah, I feel like I would have been so scared if I saw this in theaters, so my parents wouldn't let me watch the movies until I read the books. So I think I read the books in fourth grade and then uh, started watching the movies after. But Katie, my sister, was like super into it. So she got the box set with like the extendeds and like the insane amount of extras. Like if you ever have time to watch the appendices of Lord of the Rings, it's basically a documentary of the entire making of, which was like such a production because yeah, pre-production started in 1997, I think. Wow. Yeah, 1997, and then they filmed it. They filmed all three at once from 1999 to 2000 with pickup shots after. Um, But yeah, this is my first time watching the theatrical version. And I think they're both great. I don't think it's wrong to... I'm I'm not, like, mad that they cut it down for theaters because it's extensive. (laughs) But they do put in some extra fun stuff and more lore in the extended, so I do highly recommend them um, because I'm sure Peter Jackson would have put more into the extendeds if he could have. Yeah. There's just so much to cover. The extendeds <laughs> are fun. They are fun. Wild. I think it's about 12 hours between all three yeah. of them. Well, that's how I watched this one because I had like a marathon of all three of them. And so I watched extended well, I watched extended of this one only because this was the only one not on Netflix. And I don't have my copy of the regular one because somebody who I won't name, his name's Toby, took it <laughs> and hadn't brought it back yet. So, but yes, I, I mean, I'm used to both of them. More extended because it's been ages since I've seen theatrical. Gotcha. So my question for both of you, because um, I know this is 
don't know, maybe it's not as big of a debate as I think it is, but especially think about the length. So for both of you, when you talk about the Lord of the Rings films, do you consider them all together one film or three separate films? This is a debate I've seen before, and I'm not even sure like how to land on it because I haven't seen all three of them in so long. Maddie? Um, I, would, I would consider them separate films. I think all three of them have distinct... Um, like a distinct tone okay. that's different in all three films. Because um, the first one is like, I mean, very optimistic. It's very, like the color scheme is also just like very bright and colorful. Like when you go from the Shire, like all the way to the Council of Elrond, like it's beautiful and then it starts getting a little darker as they go on. And then you hit, you know, you get all the way to the third one and the tone is just so much darker. It's so much darker. <laughs> there's like, it's void of all hope, you know? So I think there's definitely three distinct tones from all three movies. Um, and they, he, I know Tolkien originally wrote this book to be one book, but his publisher was like, <laughs> no. So he, he begrudgingly broke it up into, into three. Um, and Peter Jackson shifted some elements that happen in each book, like, in the books, Boromir dies in the second book instead of the first book. Um, but I do appreciate how he kind of shifted to make three distinct tones, I guess. Because I feel like that's a tonal shift from the first one to the second one. It's like, Boromir died. They're not invincible. Mm -hmm. You know, like, people in this party, in this fellowship are going to die. And this is like, this is the kind of start of us realizing their mortality, I guess. But That makes sense. Yeah, Christian. No, um, gosh, I was gonna say tone too, you copycat. <laughs> no, but I definitely see it because it starts out like hopeful, optimistic. Hey, we're going on this journey. It's not gonna be that bad. To hey, you know what? Now we're separated. This is this. Now we're in the second one. We're separated. Now we got to do some battles, help some other people. Third one. I don't know if I can go on with this. You know, fuck this with the ring. I'll just wear it forever. No, but um, yes, there are three separate movies. However, to get the most out of them, you have to watch them back to back to back. Mm. Sorry, Brett. Like, rewatch no this back to back to back because it <laughs> makes the most sense to do it. I, whenever I watch these, I do not want to pause and pick up the next day. I like continuously want to sit through them because it is, it feels like one huge story, even though they are three different movies. Yeah. All right. And the books, are, I mean, the books are good too, but I wasn't as thrilled with them, I think. He does, I think that Peter Jackson does a great job in adapting them and making me care because the books, it took me a very long time to get through the second and, well, the second and third book because they're divided into like two, what, like two books each per thing. Yeah. The Fellowship of the Ring is a really good book. Other than that, watch the damn movies. <laughs> Sorry, J.R.R. Tolkien. I guess we lost that audience. <laughs> Whoops. We just lose one population every episode. I guess. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Maddie, would you like to read some of the fun facts we have listed here? Oh, yes, please. Okay, so it won um, 
what had nine Oscar nominations, which is like, yeah, that's amazing. Best picture, supporting actor, adapted screenplay, art set direction, costumes, film, editing, original song, and sound. Oh, may it be? Enya did that. Yeah. I haven't thought of that name in like 10 years. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> um, I really like this one, the, the fact that Christopher Lee was the only cast member to have ever met J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and he was like, he was really important in getting like the authenticity of what Tolkien wanted in his movies. Um, and he, I know he gave, he was like always walking around talking to everybody about like how to change the set or how to change the makeup or how to change the costumes. And Peter Jackson really, really took his advice to heart, I think. And it shows. Um, and let's see. How many did it win? How many did it win? Four. Wow. Cinematography. Agreed. Makeup. Yes. Original score. Howard Shore and visual effects. Yes so so All good observed. yeah i know that oh and it is in here that harvey weinstein was like very intense christian do you want to talk about that <laughs> i mean basically he took it peter jackson took this to miramax and harvey weinstein was like you will make this into two movies I think it was, no, it was one movie and then it was two movies and Peter Jackson was like, I guess. But then he went to New Line at the last minute and they're like, we'll give it to you for three movies. And he's like, fuck you, Harvey. But, um, so Maddie and I listened to a uh, YouTube person called Lindsay Ellis. Um, listen to her stuff, please. I'm pretty sure she mentioned something too that Harvey did have some stake in this movie and this one alone, not the next two. Mm. Great um, video essays, though, on her. Lindsay Ellis, listen to her. And the only thing you should ever watch about The Hobbit is her critique oh of the films and why it did not work at all. Because <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, I think my favorite, like, little itty-bitty fact about this is that there were, like, three or four crew members, and they spent the, like, entire three years linking like plastic chain mail together for like all of the extras and they did it so much that it wore their like thumbprints away it like oh. wore off their thumbprint yikes for linking chain mail <laughs> so good um but yeah forty-eight thousand prop items were used in like the entire trilogy including weapons including trinkets like jewelry costumes everything you could possibly think of um and then i think my one other like favorite little little tidbit about this is at the end when um uh aragorn Ervigo mortensen is fighting that big urukai lurts the character of lurts the guy who's playing him misdirects the knife that he is throwing and it's like a real knife for whatever reason and it basically almost kills Vigo Mortensen and when he like hits it with his sword that's him actually saving his own life from being impaled by this knife fun fact wow yeah it's crazy it's crazy well damn otherwise we would have never gotten Tony Vallelonga so. Damn it! I was literally about to say. <laughs> I was literally about to say we would never have gotten Green Book. Yeah, sorry, I had to. Uh, 
but yeah, overall, I feel like everybody should see it if you're a fan of practical effects and merging them with CGI and, and not overusing CGI, but um, this is like just the perfect example of using scales and using uh, interesting visual effects to trick the eyes. Um, it's phenomenal. Definitely. Yeah, definitely influential in visual effects. Definitely just influential as far as like the last, this century of films, you know, um, you know, making its way onto the AFI list at number 50 in 2007. Like that's a big deal for a film that was made six years earlier. Um, and so that's awesome. All right. Anything else on this amazing film? Um, I would just want to say that this made like 315 at the box office. Mm. So yeah. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Andrew Jack, who was a dialect coach for this. And he just actually recently passed away from COVID. Mm. Um, but I found out that he used recordings of Tolkien actually reading this book to give the actors and actresses the right pronunciations of like a lot of the stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. He unfortunately though, like I said, passed away just last month, I believe. Wow. Yeah. Um, but yes, we will, we will be back with the more Lord of the Rings because there are two more movies. <laughs> and I'm trying to like rein in my excitement so I don't just like spend it all on this one movie. <laughs> That's fair. All right, Christian, do you want to introduce our next movie? Do the can can can! Do the can 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 can! All right, so that gives you a hint. So speaking of um, CGI, but more CGI that is very extensive and not very realistic. We have Moulin Rouge, a film directed by Baz Luhrmann down in Australia. And this stars Ewan McGregor as a writer named Christian who visits the Moulin Rouge, which is a famous nightclub in Paris. And he meets and falls madly in love, of course, with Santine, who is played by Nicole Kidman. This was probably like the first time I was aware of Nicole Kidman through this movie. Um, but no, they fall in love. Most, I mean, this is a musical and it's not really your conventional musical at all. It disobeys a lot of the rules. It's a comedy, it's a drama, it's a romance. It's a jukebox musical. So that means that all these songs are derived from not like your typical, you know, music and lyrics. They're derived from songs you hear on the radio, except they're like revamped, it's a very hyped up movie. It takes it to an 11. But so as Christian and Santine fall in love, they also have to get away from um, her sort of betrothed, the Duke. And so they make a musical together called Spectacular Spectacular along with Christian's friends. Um, I mean, great film overall. I loved it. Some of us, I don't think, really loved it. I won't say who, but you can give a hint. Um, but no, it's so exciting. It's, it is an adrenaline junkie's dream of a movie musical. If you watch this on some sort of speed, I bet you would get so much of like a different reaction to it. It's the best I can compare it to. It is fun. It is colorful. It is out there. This is Moulin Rouge and it is now a Broadway musical. So yes. I want to hear from, first off, I want to hear from Maddie, because I want to say Brett for last. Wow. <laughs> Jeez, I wonder who the one is who didn't like it. <laughs> Whenever there's a musical, I always say Brett for last. 
it's definitely a fever dream of a movie. Like, it's very intense and hectic. And, I mean, I guess that embodies the whole, like, bohemian um, aesthetic that they're going for in this and the ideals of beauty, truth, and love and all that stuff. Um, I, yeah, the first time that I saw this was in high school. And our friend group was, like, really, really into it. Um, And I hadn't really seen it since high school about eight years ago, I guess. Um, And so I watched it again for this. And it, I feel like it really hit differently. Like the performances were more intense and I felt like the emotion from the characters a lot more, um, I guess, as I've experienced life more. Um, But yeah, I've seen, of course, his version of um, Romeo and Juliet. And it has that same kind of like, hectic feel to it like the editing is very fast um there's never a dull moment um i do appreciate the effects in this one a lot just because they're so over the top um and so like personified um but yeah i really enjoyed it and i like the original song as well that i guess didn't come from this it was supposed to be for romeo and juliet but christian do you know why that it wasn't in romeo and juliet Probably for, like, time constraints. Fair. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I really enjoyed it as as a, as a an adult. Okay. Um, oh. so, so before Christian slanders my name here, saying I hated this movie, four out of five stars. So just going to throw that out there. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I was just as I was watching this and reflecting on it after watching both this and Lord of the Rings, I mean, what a showdown for some of the technical aspects this year. I mean, these are both films that if they came out in two separate years could easily sweep, you know, all the technical awards. Um, the costumes are amazing. Like, you know, like you said, the, the colors are extravagant and amazing. And it's, I mean, hang on to your seat because it is fast paced and really vibrant and unique in that way i was a little caught off guard that like the songs were songs i knew like i was not expecting to hear smells like teen spirit in this movie i did not know texted me the second that happened i'm like oh my god that smells like teen spirit that's awesome i I really loved it like i i also really loved how much they centered um your song by elton john because that was just like the perfect song to tie together mcgregor and kidman's romance of the movie and they just have really great chemistry too. Um, I was also shocked by how good of a voice Ewan McGregor has. Um, like I had to look up, like, did he do his own singing for this? Cause this, he's amazing. Like this is incredible. Um, and so really good job with the performances there. Jim Broadbent really like him in this too. I think I haven't seen Iris, but I think he should have been nominated for this. Um, Cause I think he's really good here. I would give him the nomination for this any day. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, most of the time it works, even when it doesn't, which is not very often. It's it's always a joy. It's always fun. Um, you can always have fun with it, and it 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 has a very somber ending. Um, which you know, when I started the movie, would not have expected, but I think it works. Um, it works really well, and so I don't know. It's one that I think. 
I could enjoy more over time. I like to view this is the first time I've seen it, like nearly all of these movies. Um, but definitely a very unique musical. Like if you if you're in the mood for a musical, but you don't want to watch, you know, one of the classics or you want something that's just different, this is a good choice. Um, and so, and Nicole Kidman, I mean, what a year. She had this and the others in the same year. That's phenomenal. Um, that's amazing. And so she had this, the others, and her liberation from Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the trifecta. Amazing. Right. Um, no, oh God, these songs. I'm just thinking about it. I saw this in theaters a few years ago. They had like a Valentine's Day special, and this was the movie. And my cousin was so confused by it. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm like, this is a great film. But no, um, I'm just thinking that without this film, you would not have the success of Chicago the next year. Mm. Think about that. Now, we haven't discussed Chicago yet, but it is a Best Picture winner. And this is, like I have in the fun facts, this is the first musical to be nominated in over 10 years. The last one was technically Beauty and the Beat, which we've discussed. Yeah, but like a full-on blown musical is like the 70s, the last time that happened. Wow. So like, you know, this sort of like, I will say it feels like it opened the door. And this is me speaking, because as everybody knows, I love a movie musical. This opened the door really for something more in what you could do with a movie musical. You know, it doesn't play any of the rules. We keep saying it's fun, it's loud, it's entertaining, and my God, it is. Um, So this won two Oscars, Best Art Direction, Set Direction. I think I read that this was totally filmed on a set. There's no, like, actual locations. And costume design. And speaking of costume design, the necklace that Kidman wears in this is valued at over like a million dollars and it was the most expensive piece of jewelry ever made for a film yeah this is uh, also nominated for six including best act best picture uh best actress for nicole cinematography film editing makeup and sound many people thought that the biggest snubs of that year was for Baz lorman and for the screenplay of this um this was a hit i mean roughly speaking at 57 and a half million I think it came out too in June. So yeah, impressive there. Inspired by Bollywood musicals, I can definitely see that. Uh, opening film of Khan 2001. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I wonder how long that standing ovation was. And the booze, because I'm sure somebody booed it. <laughs> um, like Maddie said, the Come What May song was supposed to be in Romeo and Juliet. It's a good song too. Interesting. But the best song in this, like the, the one that goes so hardcore, Roxanne. <laughs> I agree. That is I think a fun it, sequence. Yeah, it just really characterizes the film so well. Because I'm, I, I don't know. I sometimes I have issues with how uh, they do the covers of songs in movie musicals. Um, there are maybe one or two songs in this that I didn't really enjoy as much as the originals, but it's such, uh, it's such a good. It's such a good part. The editing is so strong in that part. Oh, it's so good. I completely agree. I also love John Leguizamo in this. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. He's also very good. He's, yes. Yeah, I think the last movie I saw with him before this was Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything. And I was like, oh, because I'd never seen him in, I don't know, 
Uh, and then I watched Romeo and Juliet a couple weeks ago, and I was like, oh, well. He has I, such a range. I will say connected. I get so hyped up with the introduction of Nicole Kidman in this. Yeah. Like. Great scene. So pretty. This movie's so pretty. It is a lot of fun from beginning to end. For sure. Now we're just going to get depressed with the next one. <laughs> so I guess that means we're ready for our best picture winner from this year. Do we have to? Well, maybe, maybe we should yeah, say, I guess. Maybe we should say <laughs> their best picture winner. Um, but yes, we do have our best, the best picture winner from that year. And it was Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind. Um, so this is a biopic of a mathematician and economist named John Nash, who is played by Russell Crowe. It starts out where Nash is in college at Princeton, um, and he's kind of a you know he's kind of a social. He doesn't really um, interact well with other people, doesn't get along, and doesn't kind of put himself out there in that way. And he's really struggling because he has to he has to finish up his doctoral degree and his research and whatnot. But he is so stubborn because he wants to find something wholly original and wholly new. But eventually he does, and he is extremely rewarded for it. Great job. But he's soon approached by a man named Parcher, who's played by Ed Harris, and Ed Harris works for the government. Um, and he gets John Nash into cryptology, so searching newspapers and whatnot for secret messages um, from Soviet Russia. And so on top of doing his work at MIT, Nash is also doing this for the government. I'm going to spoil it because I don't know any other way to get into it. So if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening for a little bit, go watch it, whatever. Um, but we soon find out, John Nash is soon um, diagnosed with um, paranoid schizophrenia. And so we find out that Parcher and all of this government work has all been just these, um, these delusions, these hallucinations that he has. And so it's all, it's all been fake, not real. Um, he's married to... His wife, Alicia, who is his student, it kind of just like glances over that, which is really interesting. Um, and so she kind of helps him go on from that. So the first half is him doing all the secret work. He's getting chased down by gunmen and then it turns into him recovering from his mental illness. I, you know, I, I'm not surprised this one best picture. It's, it's very, you know, it, it's a safe biopic that has that big twist and features Russell Crowe, who had just won the year before, Ron Howard, who probably should have won for Apollo 13. Um, and so it, it's not surprising to me that this won. I wouldn't pick it. I do think it's a, it's a good film. I mean, I like it. I don't think it's great. I wouldn't nominate it. Um, I don't think it's... It is very inaccurate. First off, Alicia... Alicia Nash is from El Salvador, so she's whitewashed in this film, being played by Jennifer Connelly. And there's just a lot of historical inaccuracies about John Nash's life. Um, but overall, I just don't think it's a good way to tell that story with all these different tonal shifts that are going on and treating it like a, like a weird thriller and then switching it up halfway through. So, I mean, I, I think to me, it's, it's, it's a fine film. It's far from a great film. 
I wouldn't say it's the worst nominee in my opinion, but it's not one that I would nominate and definitely would not be my winner for best picture or director. Um, so yeah, thoughts. Um, I, mm, I wanted to laugh when you're describing this movie because even then the tonal shift in what you're talking about, I, right? So, he works for the government, cryptology, communism. Wait a minute, this is all fake. His mind, beautiful, troubled, schizophrenia. I might be saying poetry here, but this is such a weird movie. Like the tonal shift of this does not work at all. It confused the shit out of me at what was happening. I mean, I was shocked. I, again, like within the bedroom, I let out an audible gasp when certain things were revealed that weren't really there. I don't want to spoil that because I think that's a pretty, very interesting aspect of it. Um, nothing really blew me away though in this at all. I think I was more excited to see like Christopher Plummer in this, who was just a side supporting character. Yeah. Yeah. Marty's agreeing. Yeah. Like then even Russell Crowe, like Russell Crowe didn't do a whole lot for me in this. This movie, it, like Brett said, safe biopic choice, um, stale white bread. Yeah, heartily agree. I think if I didn't read about um, the real people that were portrayed in this, I probably would have liked it a little bit more. Um, just because it's so hard to ignore the glaring inaccuracies, especially like whitewashing such an important character. And also, she in her own right, I mean, she was a scientist, she was a physicist, but she's just portrayed as, you know, like this would definitely not pass the Bechdel test, that is for sure. Like she has no plot of her own, like her whole existence is to further the life of her husband and his recovery. And she just takes this like very subservient role next to him when I would think from just reading what it was like in real life, they were they definitely saw each other more as equals um, in reality. And then it's just so funny that Jennifer Connelly then, you know, won an Oscar. <laughs> I was shocked when I saw that she won Supporting Actress. I was shocked. Yeah. I don't know. Because she just doesn't have any self-warranty in that movie. So it's just like, I don't get that. I don't get it at all. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Yeah. You know, one, thing, one thing I forgot to mention that even after, well, no, because reading it, I know, reading about John Nash, I know a lot about him now, but watching this, I really couldn't tell you what he's important for. Same. I agree. Like, he's musician. Okay, what did he do? They kind of, like, tried to squeeze it all into, like, the end credits, like, the end yeah. scenes, like, he was important for this, this, and this, and I'm like, well, thanks for giving us something, I guess. But yeah, I agree. I don't know. I agree. Really interesting that Jennifer Connelly won. I, yeah. And I don't know. I don't, it's, it's weird because there's not anything special there. And she, she's also not someone who would have any kind of narrative, I would think. Like there's no, there's not going to be an overdue narrative or anything like that. Um, but I don't know. And I don't know, Christian, do you want to go into the Russell Crowe story? Because he was winning Best Actor everywhere until Oscar night. Um, he glanced himself. 
So basically, like Brett said, he was winning across the boards, the Globes, SAGs. I think he won the SAG. Um, And then comes the BAFTAs. Well, he evidently wanted to read a poem on stage. He did. But on the televised version of the BAFTAs, it was cut for time. Um, Because the BAFTAs are filmed and they're aired at a later date because they're in England. Evidently, he went to one of the producers and most likely there was an altercation, a physical altercation. People found out. Um, Choice words were thrown across the way. He had apologized, but by that time, um, a lot of articles are saying he had hurt his chances at being one of the rare few, I think there's only three or four maybe, to win back-to-back Oscars. So he really blew his chance and Denzel ended up winning. Um, I have no problem with Denzel winning, actually. Me either. Not at all, no. I, like I said, Russell Crowe's fine in this. He didn't blow me away. He already won for Gladiator, which I thought was a much better role than this. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the Gladiator year. But yeah, he effectively lost his chance at this. And when you watch the video of him losing, I think he accepts it very well. Mm-hmm. I think he knows that he's going to lose in that moment. I mean, plus Julia Roberts is like, I love my life. <laughs> yeah. She was very excited about Denzel's win. She's like hugging him as he's walking off the stage. And yeah. Well, because they were in a movie together. So yeah, yeah. But no, and I know like today Maddie is texting me like how much she hates that Jennifer Connelly won for this. Like it's painful. It's painful. (laughs) It's just it feels like such a lazy, like, and I really like her as an actress. So it just feels like a very I haven't seen any of the other movies, to be fair, I'm pretty sure. But it did feel like not a deserving win for sure but yeah yeah, overall I really hate (laughs) that this one best picture (laughs) I like really hate that this one best picture (laughs) I was going through the movie you know and I was I was I was really enjoying it you know I liked the cast um I didn't think Russell Crowe was super duper special or anything with this i feel like the most acting he did was like raising his eyebrows in different ways i mean i just <laughs> i don't know i but like yeah. braveheart yeah i can understand his win for that but like i don't know for this if he did uh, I, didn't. I don't know i will say the best scene in this is the the bathtub scene with the baby <laughs> i yeah it's so true wow <laughs> I did my seat. That's like the one thrilling moment. <laughs> That's true. I don't know. Russell Crowe was on such a hot streak, you know, with not only this and Gladiator, but the year before with The Insider, um, which, you know, he didn't win that either and was never going to win. But like that was kind of the start of a really hot streak for him. And then after this kind of fell off um, for a while. So, And I'm going to quote our good friend Zay on this. But Lil Opie, Ron Howard, has only ever made one good movie, and it came out the year before, and it is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I'd also throw in Apollo 13, but I would... I will accept that, however... I, I would much more... I would be much happier if he had won for the Grinch, How the Grinch Stole Christmas than The Beautiful Mind, for sure. I mean, his direction in this is basic. Yeah. I mean, like, as we're talking about Peter Jackson... 
my God. Like, again, the heart and soul of that movie is how much Peter Jackson loved these stories to put them on screen. Ron Howard is like a secondary thought. Yeah. I mean, like all the movies we've talked about, you know, I, you know, Peter Jackson, obviously, Boz Lerman. I mean, for what he did with Milan Rouge, Todd Field would have been a better choice. Even like, I thought Gosford Park was a little bit worse movie, but I was still would have preferred Robert Altman to win over Ron Howard. Cause I just don't think he's doing anything special here whatsoever. So. And then you have also, I want to throw in there, David Lynch is nominated this year. Right. Yeah. For Mulholland Drive, which we'll talk about, which I mean, it's, it's, we'll talk about we'll get it. There. And then, Ridley Scott for um, Black Hawk Down also. Yeah. I mean, interesting, very interesting choices for director, especially this year. Bad win. Yeah. And like you said, um, because we're going to bring this up on when we determined what was the best picture of the year. Um, Academy plays it very safe is what I'm finding in Mm -hmm. our last couple episodes. Because, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, different story, but Chariots of Fire, and then this, safe. Yes. Very, very safe. Very safe. But yeah, but this did win four Oscars. Um, Best Picture Director, obviously, Connolly for Supporting Actress. It also won Adapted Screenplay. Um, wow. I mean, you had In the Bedroom there in Lord of the Rings. I mean, come on. Um, you had four additional noms. Russell Crowe for Best Actor. Uh, best film editing, makeup, and original score. Makeup, though, like for the last scene, they put a little salt and pepper in his yeah. hair. Yeah. Um, but it was a box office hit, 170 million domestic at the box office. Um, it was shot in sequence. I guess maybe that's the special thing he did is um, Ron Howard shot it in sequence. They announced that when he won at the Oscars. And I'm like, okay, that's his playing card. That's his campaign, I guess. Um, John Nash was said to have liked the film, but it felt it wasn't portraying the real him. Yeah. Had a plot line of Nash's homosexuality, but producers feared it would make the wrong connection of homosexuality and schizophrenia. Hmm. Um, Alicia Nash was, was whitewash. AFI 100 Years, 100 Cheers, most inspirational movies, number That's 93. <laughs> I don't get how this is inspirational. Yeah, I... Mm. But yeah, so that is Beautiful Minds. That was their Best Picture winner. Question is, was it ours? We've pretty much already answered that question. (laughs) (laughs) But let's go into our rankings. Um, Maddie, if you want to take us away and rank these nominees from number five up to number one, that'd be great. Okay, cool. I actually struggled with one and two and four and five. I Yeah, I'm the only one who decided A Beautiful Mind would be sitting comfortably at number five and not moving from that spot. (laughs) Um, Gosford Park is next. I think I appreciated the directional work and I thought there was a lot more going on in that movie compared to A Beautiful Mind. Um, Three, Moulin Rouge. Two, um, In the Bedroom. And I ranked Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring at number one. But I did flip-flop back and forth on those two. That was a really difficult decision. But Very nice. Christian, how about you? All right. So at number five, I have Gosford Park. I could go without having to ever see that again. Um, sort of like Maddie. I, I was thinking of flip-flopping. But, I mean, A Beautiful Mind is my number four. I would watch it again 
if I ever once more do like a best picture marathon situation. At number three, I have In the Bedroom, however I love that film. At number two, because y'all know I'm a musical bias here, it is Moulin Rouge. And so number one would be the rightful winner, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. All right. My number five is also Gosford Park. I also do not want to watch that again, even though I didn't think it was bad or anything. Um, number four is A Beautiful Mind. Number three, Moulin Rouge. My number two is actually The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Whoa. <laughs> Had to be different, I guess. And my number one is In the Bedroom. But l- like you mentioned, Maddie, that was a really tough decision. Lord of the Rings might be the better film of the two, but In the Bedroom just like impacted me for days. And so that made that decision. So I'm pretty sure yesterday when Maddie and I were practicing for this, I said, he might pick in the bedroom as number one. You did say that. There you Thank you. It. Christian, I was like texting you. I was like, oh my God, this is an amazing movie. But I know. <laughs> I shouldn't be surprised then. But yeah, so this was great. Um, that's how we rank the nominees. But like we said earlier, we do have some more films to cover from this year because it was a fun year for movies. And so... Be sure to be looking out for our next episode, which will be a year in review for 2001. We each pick two more films, just like always, to go over those. We'll rank our personal nominees and winners. Um, I'm sure we'll have a lot of differences there from what the Academy had. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, But as always, um, thanks for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Follow us on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Thanks as always to Joshua Arnaldi for doing our theme music. Um, and thanks, Maddie, for joining us today. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? Um, thank you for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Um, I'm really excited about the next time you record because so many great movies came out at the turn of the, turn of the century. I mean, it's turn of the millennia, as it were. Um, but yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Overall, I thought it was a good year for uh, the best pictures. I liked all of them in their own right enough <laughs> for some of them. Moving <laughs> on and your checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, any final thoughts from you? Um, I just wanted to add the one thing that you and I were talking about on answering how many of these Yes, there you go. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. So um, Christian was noticing that um, seems like as of late, we just have not agreed with the Academy very often. And so we decided to go and look through it, the times that at least the two of us have agreed with the Academy on the best picture. And including this episode, they are a solid five out of 15. So yeah 33% success rate for the academy so far um they got some work to do going forward but good job y'all you did it (laughs) yes as always thanks for listening be sure to tune in for the next episode and we'll talk to you then see ya